Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Ligi from London. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already. And do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find the show as well. Today, it's an absolute pleasure to welcome onto the show Mary Ellen Iskandarian, President and Chief Executive Officer of Women's World Banking. Women's financial inclusion is the key topic for today. And we'll be looking at it from different angles, from digital literacy and social norms, regulatory frameworks, impact investing, and much more. We're also looking at the financial research that shows that ensuring women are fully included into our financial system is not just a moral imperative, but also makes commercial sense as well. So without further ado, Mary Ellen, a big heartfelt welcome onto the Do One Better podcast today. Thank you so much, Alberto. It's great to be with you. Well, it's a pleasure to see you. You're out there in New York. I'm here in the UK. Thanks so much for getting up early. I know we have a bit of a time difference. So you're heading up Women's World Banking, and I'd love to find out what Women's World Banking is all about. Well, sure. Actually, uh, you know, you're just making me realize it's the beginning of April. This is our anniversary month. We are a, as of this month, let's see, 44-year-old uh, global nonprofit. Excellent. Which I, yeah, I know it's a it's a really a great great track record. Um, since our inception, our focus has been on ensuring that all women, including low income women um, in the emerging markets, have access to the full suite of financial products and services. So n- not just access to micro loans, but to safe places to save insurance, pensions, and if they do have a business and want to grow that business, make sure that they do have access to responsible, productive credit. And for many years, we functioned, you know, more or less like a a membership organization for some of the most iconic microfinance institutions around the world. But I'd say about maybe a dozen years or so, 12 to 15 years or so, as technology and um, mobile money, digital financial services really became the way to bringing financial services to the poor, to really remote populations at an affordable price, um, we really saw the field explode in terms of the kinds of partners, the numbers of partners that we could be working with. And so today, and I, I always have to check this number because it changes you know, really month to month, but today we work with uh, 65 partners in 36 countries, and those include still some microfinance institutions, but mainstream banks, fintechs, fully a third of our partners are fintechs, um, neobanks, mobile money providers, insurance companies, non-bank financial institutions, lenders to SMEs. So all kinds of organizations that are eager to recognize the real commercial potential of serving low-income women in a responsible um, and sustainable way. And we do that in three main ways. The first, I think, is probably the thing we're best known for is we work very closely with those organizations to develop new products, come up with the appropriate marketing for those products, train um, a sales force that's going to be 
responsive to women's needs and the things and the questions that they bring um, to finance to help build the trust that's so necessary for, for all of us to want to transact with the financial sector. The second thing we do, and this I'd say is a, a more recent development, is just recognizing how important building a, an inclusive policy ecosystem is. And so we have a number of tools and mechanisms we use to work with policymakers and regulators throughout the developing world. And our, our sort of flagship for that is a leadership and diversity training program that we offer for regulators in um, partnership with uh, one of your neighbors, uh, Oxford University. And then our third, and maybe the, you know, you're never supposed to admit to, to loving one of your children more than the others, but I take personal responsibility for having built up our capacity as a as an impact investor. So about a decade ago, we started really putting our, our money where our mission is and investing in financial institutions that were committed to being more gender diverse themselves, as well as more women. And that's turned out to be, you know, extraordinarily impactful and happy to talk a little bit more about that. And then just I'll finish up by saying everything I just described is really underpinned by a very rigorous research team. And so we publish pretty much everything we find because we really want to make sure that we're we're spreading the, the word about what good, loyal, profitable clients, even very poor women can be for financial institutions. Fascinating, fascinating. So you mentioned emerging markets. I know that there are issues that are of relevance both in the developed world and the developing world. If you're talking about, say, unbanked individuals, uh, that's something that's been uh, an issue here in the UK. We, you can see adverts in the um, on the street from some financial institutions saying, you know, let's not let the lack of a home address uh, prevent you from opening up a bank account. Um how would you characterize uh, the state of affairs with regards to the developed world and um, and uh, women's access to financial services and you know being able to participate fully in in all of the services that are available uh, versus the developing world? Um, if we could characterize that, I appreciate it's a very broad question and uh, and full of generalizations. But if we could characterize it somehow, how would you do so? Sure, it's a it's a great question and actually one that I. I have personally become um, quite passionate about in, in terms of how these issues play out in my own country, but also um, I'm excited that our next impact investment fund is actually going to be looking at um, investing in commercial solutions to some of these issues here in the United States. So I'm, it's very timely that you're asking the question. Um, I think the way, the way we tend to think about it is, you know, in the, in the, the, I, I recently heard that I, we are no longer saying the developing world, but the majority world, um, in the majority world, the, issue of financial inclusion is is measured literally by whether you own a bank account or a mobile money account in your own name. And that's less of the issue and the the measurement here in in the United States and in in other um industrialized countries you see um the issue being maybe more one of what we call financial health. Can you um do you have the financial services 
um, and access to those financial services affordably to help you navigate emergencies, to navigate um, the needs that you you and your family might be facing to grow your business? Do you have do you have access to those? As I say, at, at an affordable price, and unfortunately. Um, we do see some real gaps um, still in in the U.S. Um, pay gap still drives a lot of financial inequality in this country. We we know that women, on average, are making a, roughly eighty cents on the dollar of the average man. But as soon as you add race or ethnicity to that that calculation, those numbers fall pretty dramatically. And that that difference changes so much in terms of your your lifelong ability to save for retirement. We see, you know, women are earning less and, and then retire on less money and then and have the triple whammy of tending to live longer than men. So in the United States, for example, women over 60 are the demographic that are are falling below the poverty line at the fastest rate. Um, you also see the maybe even more egregious is the wealth gap. So on average, women own 40% of the assets, control 40% of the wealth of men. But again, you add race, ethnicity, those numbers fall even into the single digits. Home ownership, um, asset ownership, investment assets, savings accounts, the things that build wealth are far less accessible um, to women for a, a variety of reasons. Um, and so there's, I think, some really exciting opportunities that some of the tech-enabled tech solutions are bringing um, to solving those problems. But there's there's absolutely an issue that needs to be addressed. Yeah. Very, very sobering picture that you're um, that you've painted there. If we look at the global South, uh, if we, if we could use that term, if we look at the global South, uh, in addition to everything you've highlighted, we also have uh, social norms, gender inequities, uh, a lower uh, digital literacy, uh, things that that are often more pronounced in, in the global South. And um, a question to you is, what are the main bottlenecks? Uh, that you can home in on. What are the main priority areas? Um, what are the main things that you're, you know, you have your sights on, in order to address the issue of uh, women's financial inclusion? Um, we kind of tend to think about them in sort of three buckets, if you will. Um, the first one, you know, are things that 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 women themselves face and or can address. I'd say women tend to be, the research indicates that women tend to be sort of less aware of what options are available to them and have both, interestingly, both a real and an imagined um, lesser um, digital and financial literacy. They they self-report that they are less comfortable, less, less knowledgeable, less confident with um, financial um, financial concepts. And, and as I say, since so much is dependent on, um, on digital technology now, they're equally uncomfortable navigating, um, navigating that technology. They also have significantly less access to it. I think one of the things we were very excited about, you know, you pointed to social norms, you know, COVID was that, you know, that 
example you always hear about of the you know, the emergency that allows uh, a culture to break through some of the obstacles, you know, in the moment, in that moment of crisis. And we saw for the first time a a dramatic um, closing of the gender gap or move toward closing, not actual closing of the gender gap in terms of um, cell phone ownership and smartphone ownership in particular as more and more governments were making their relief payments and their COVID assistance digitally available through the cell phone. Uh, but unfortunately, in the two years since, um, you know, that 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 big rush of payments, unfortunately, you're starting to see that gap widen again. So we've gone from a COVID level, 15% gender gap in smartphone ownership up to 18%. We're all kind of eagerly awaiting the latest numbers from the the GSMA, the Mobile Phone Industry Association, to see where that, that gap currently stands. But that whole access to technology, comfort with technology, comfort with literacy, awareness of what um, is available would be one of those, you know, that that first bucket, as I say, of barriers. The second, and this one is just the the one that frustrates me enormously, and I don't entirely understand, is with financial service providers who, despite all of the evidence and a very clear business case that can be made, really don't see this customer segment, particularly the low income client, as a profitable, viable client base. And to a very great extent, many countries throughout um, the developing world do not collect or report or even use for decision purposes disaggregated data, financial data that says this is how a woman uses the product. This is how a man uses the product. This is where they're using it. This is what kind of margins you're making on it. The whole ability to, to segment your customer base is is a, a real lost opportunity for many financial service providers, and I, I uh, part of the reason it's so mysterious to me is that Oliver Wyman, the consultants, have calculated that the entire financial service industry. So if we look at banks, insurance companies, asset management firms, are leaving seven hundred billion dollars in revenue on the table every year just by not serving men and women at parity. So we're not even necessarily talking about all of those unbanked people, just serving men and women in the same way. And then the third group of of barriers that we work on um, are those regulatory barriers, making sure that everything that a government can do to make a, a level playing field for um, for women when it comes to financial services, um, making sure that that's in place. And I'd say one of the biggest obstacles um, we see globally that um, women only receive about um, 2% of venture capital investments, women entrepreneurs. And even in the developed world, they are only receiving about a third of the business lending that male entrepreneurs are. And the number one obstacle that they that women point to is, um, is collateral. In far too many countries around the world, um, the only acceptable banking collateral by law 
are um, land or real estate built property. And women are far less likely to own those in their own name. There are many countries that still prohibit uh, women from uh, owning property in their own name. There are a few countries that even after uh, you know, a piece of property comes into the marriage, a woman brings that into a marriage, um, her husband is um, responsible for the disposition of that, of that property. So that whole uh, regime around property, property rights, and collateral is a very large focus of, of our work when we're talking talking to to regulators. And I, I just say, I point out just one more regulatory issue that's very alive right now for us. And one that I think a lot of countries are paying attention to is this, the whole issue of, of identification and particularly digital identification as more business services, government services, and, you know, as more of our lives moves online, if you don't have a way to identify yourself digitally, you will be left further and further behind. This is something that actually um, affects men and women equally throughout the developing world. There are just so many more women that didn't have, you know, the paper ID to begin with that we are kind of, maybe we can leapfrog that that intermediate step and move them directly to um, the digital ID. Yeah, absolutely. I'm curious about your ecosystem. I mean, you've given us a little bit of a view of, of the U.S., but I'm curious about your ecosystem. Um, there's so many facets to to look at in terms of the work you're trying to do. Uh, I remember even just from from thinking back to previous guests uh, on the on the Do One Better podcast. If we're looking at digital literacy, uh, I know the folks at the NASCOM Foundation in India are doing a great deal of work with, on this. Uh, if we're looking at uh, ensuring women are included in in entrepreneurship. Sherry Blair uh, and her foundation doing some really interesting work on that, um, gaining access to loans without traditional credit histories, private sector firms, social enterprise like Hello Tractor, uh, remarkable stuff happening there as well. Um, and, and looking at land ownership, for instance, if we look at Habitat for Humanity and Jonathan Reckford, who, who, who runs that, um, they worked on changing legislation in one of the countries in, in Latin America to ensure that women are um, are recognized as property owners. Um, and even the issue of you know identifying who owns land in itself can be quite uh, challenging in, in certain markets uh, where, say for instance, you want to build a school. Uh, even if you have the financing, you may not necessarily know who actually owns that plot of land. It becomes quite difficult to ascertain that. Uh, even in the best of circumstances. So I'm wondering about your ecosystem. You know, what does your ecosystem look like? Who are some of your partners? Well, I, I was smiling as you were talking because, um, you know, so many of the organizations that you mentioned are our partners. <laughs> so um, so you were you were right. You were right on the money. I mean, I think that's, that's part of why I'm, I'm so, um, I remain as energized as I do about the the subject of women's financial inclusion and their greater empowerment because it really does feel like a solution not a problem that that we can solve but that we can solve it through um to a very great extent through public public and private sector means that there is a sustainable business at the base of um of this problem and you know, we've got lots and lots of examples. Would love to tell you some of our stories um, of working with financial service providers. 
um, the largest mobile money provider in Pakistan. Um, and I'm convinced part of the reason why they even noticed that this was an issue was because their chief technology officer was a woman. But she was seeing that despite their best efforts and their a real intention on their part to drive more women clients to a new mobile wallet that they were designing, um, they only had 12% women clients. And so she had gotten the CEO to agree to create a woman's product. And so we were hired to come in and help design the woman's product. But when we looked at that 12% of the, the clientele that were women, we saw that there was nothing wrong with the product. The women, those 12% were using the product exactly the same way men were in the same ways. The company was making very similar margins on that product. Where the problem was, was and I and it you know addresses some of the things you were talking earlier about um, cultural norms, is that the way you onboarded a client into that product was uh, she had to go into a a shop where an agent um, was uh, a banking agent who was in sort of a mom and pop shop. In most cases, it was only the pop. It was only the man in, you know, fairly small space. And if she, you know, the intrepid woman walked into that, uh, that business, she then had to give that man her cell phone number. So all of that is just so contrary to, you know, the prevailing, you know, cultural milieu that women were quite uncomfortable, their husbands and fathers were quite uncomfortable with their doing that. And so it just really wasn't happening. And so we partnered with um, Unilever, who had built a network of women agents, uh, 1,000 women agents, all or not, not so much agents, but um, business owners across the country who were selling Unilever products. We then trained them to be banking agents for the mobile money provider. And not all of our products have the uh, projects have this um, great a. Uh, uh, a track record so quickly, but we moved like literally within six months from 12% women clients to 42% women clients. There was so much pent up demand for digital financial services, the ability to transfer money digitally, pay for things digitally, save digitally. And as soon as you created a, a an onboarding and a, a product that was consistent with the way women wanted to be approached by the product, you know, they were right on board to receive it. So I think there's just a lot to be said for designing products that really meet women's needs, that really address the, the specific pain points um, that they're, that they're facing. Yeah. And just one last thing I'll, I'll mention that we're really excited about is we've seen in India, um, women banking agents. So uh, the, the the women who are either in the kiosks or going from village to village to reach some of the more um, remote uh, populations are having tremendous success with both men and women. We're seeing um, there's a, a savings product that we've been developing with three of the largest banks in India to address this, this issue of dormant accounts. And we're seeing women agents have a higher rate of, of sign up for the product. 
they then have a higher rate of translating that sign up to an actual deposit. The accounts that are under their mandate tend to have higher balances. Again, this is both men and women that they're serving, and they have um, a higher rate of cross-selling from the savings product to an insurance product. And the men feel that they answer questions and take time in answering questions and are more helpful than male agents who will be, you know, faster and perhaps less um, less patient in answering in answering questions. So we're very excited now, not only just the inclusion of women clients, but seeing how vital women in the workforce of the financial sector can be towards furthering more inclusion. And on the um, on the impact investing side, and you know this is an area very close to my heart. Uh, I know it's something you're you're very excited about. Uh, tell us a little bit about the impact investing side of the work that you're doing. So we started about twelve years ago um, and raised our first fifty million dollar fund. We invested that money in ten primarily microfinance institutions. There were a couple of you know institutions that had a slightly different business model. Um, we have exited um, seven of those investments. We've got three more left that we're trying to um, to harvest good, responsible exits in the next uh, 18 months or so. And then last year, we closed on a second fund of $103 million that has, uh, uh, I think, a, a much broader mandate in, in the sense that we're investing in uh, a whole range of business models, quite a few fintech uh, models. One of my favorite portfolio companies um, is not a fintech, actually, but addresses some of the issues that we've talked about today, Alberto, is a uh, affordable housing finance company in India that requires that the woman's name be on the title to the property that's being financed. And so one fell swoop, you're giving her that critical asset ownership that's so fundamental to further empowerment. And these funds, the um, the, the people who are interested in these funds, are they expecting traditional risk-adjusted rates of return? Are, are they happy with concessionary rates of return? Uh, do you cater to all audiences? Give us a little bit of insight into into that. Well, thank, thank you for, for asking that because we you know, we feel part of the the demonstration of our, our, we're of course very proud of our $150 million assets under management, but it's a drop in the bucket in terms of what's needed. So we feel that in order to to drive other capital into this, um, you know, this similar investment thesis, we've got to show that this can be commercially viable and that we can make commercial returns. Interestingly, our second fund, had a, a quite substantial first loss that was provided by the European Commission and the uh, the German government. And that, I thought that was a really, really good deal for the, you know, mainstream investor because those, um, you know, that first loss not only, you know, protected downside, but they had a significantly limited upside as well. So anything after um, a, a fairly modest return was was made to them, would go to your your mainstream investors. So um, there's some I think there's some really interesting deals to be made now in this this concept of blended finance for the investor who doesn't want to sacrifice returns um, but believes in the importance of impact investing. 
well, that's a that's a whole episode in, in its own right. Exactly. <laughs> um, for those who who are listening, who who are interested in finding out more uh, about the work you're doing, uh, where where would you point them to? Oh well, please come come visit our our newly designed website at women's. There's no apostrophe. Women'sworldbanking.org. And uh, you can navigate the site and learn all about our our latest research, our latest product um, introductions, and um, especially our impact investing is, as, as I say, very exciting results we're seeing there. And in terms of the people who who might be interested in supporting you, working with you, collaborating with you somehow, are you open to all sorts of conversations, exploring all sorts of partnerships? Oh, my goodness. It's takes it takes everybody i mean we i think that's really we've proven that this partnership model um is is really the most sustainable i think because we have some long standing you know some of these partnerships date back to our founding at 44 years ago um you can you can kind of get to the stuff that really matters fastest because you've built up decades of trust. So we're a big believer in in very diverse um, partnerships and longstanding ones. So I think the, you know how to contact us is very clear through through the website. Um, there's a, an email for me um, as the CEO, and I'd love to hear. And if you know anyone's hand should you know drift towards the donate button on our uh, on our website. We'd we'd welcome that as well. Great, great. The uh, the squeaky wheel always gets the oil, I think. So it's always good to be clear about what you're what you're looking for. Um, I have to ask you before you run off with your um, with your busy day. How did you end up where you are today? Give us a little bit of insight into your professional trajectory, your your personal narrative. How did you end up where you are today? Well, I I am a recovering banker. I've been a banker pretty much my my entire career. I um I really didn't feel like my um, initial post MBA career at Lehman Brothers was consonant with my values and where I thought finance should be, um, you know, should be used for for good. Um, I was very fortunate to get into the Young Professionals Program at the World Bank, which is kind of an entry level management program. And I got in just as the Berlin Wall was coming down and worked for the next decade or so in Central and Eastern Europe. And then ultimately the former Soviet Union worked a great deal in Ukraine, actually, um, and really saw what an impact finance could have on people's lives, on their dreams. It, you know, it had never, you know, the financial system had not been anything that was put to the service of people in the system under which they had been living. And so I was very engaged in, in setting up in many cases, you know, the first mutual funds, the first investments. I did a lot of work on securities um, regulation in, in all of those environments. But I just felt as the longer I was there, the further away I was from the people that I had gone into development to, to work with. And so when a, I received a headhunter call for Women's World Banking, it sounded um, like a really exciting opportunity. And I haven't looked back. It's been, it's been a wonderful, wonderful trajectory. Excellent. Excellent. Um, what about a key takeaway? Do you have a key takeaway you'd love to share with the audience before we, we wrap up today's episode? 
I think it would get back to a, a big part of our, our conversation that this is, you know, low-income women should not be seen as charity cases. They are sustainable, profitable, very loyal customers of financial service providers that can yield um, impressive business results for those organizations if they take the time to learn how to serve them. Mm, I love it. I have to thank you very much for for joining us today, joining me here on the Do One Better podcast and sharing so much insight on the work you're doing uh, and the the monumental task ahead of you. So I wish you a great deal of success, continued success for 2023 and beyond. Thank you so much. It's been a real a real pleasure starting the day with this conversation, Alberto. Thank you. Perfect. And that's a wrap. Thanks very much for tuning in. As always, you've been listening to a great chat with Mary Ellen Iskandarian of Women's World Banking. For information about this conversation and more than 200 other case studies and interviews with remarkable leaders in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship, just visit our website at lidji.org. That's L-I-D-J-I.org. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already. And do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find the show as well. Thoroughly enjoyed producing today's show for you. I hope you found it informative, insightful, and prompting you to take some action to improve the world around you. Thanks very much for joining, and I will catch you this coming Monday.